Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 116 uh, this week in FCPA for the week ending, August 17th, 2018, the Free Press Edition. Jay is on a well-earned Alaskan Disney cruise with his family, so I'm going to take this week on a solo effort, and we're going to look at uh, the week's compliance and ethics stories through the prism of President Trump's attacks on the free press and the press's response. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. So some of the stories I take up this week include the role of the free press in the fight against bribery and corruption. In his final column at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, Ben DiPietro wrote about social activism, uh, prioritizing the push for integrity and inclusion. We take a look at the uh, imbroglio of the Tesla Board of Directors, the SEC subpoena to them, and, of course, Elon Musk's funding secured tweet. We ask the question, uh, why is it stupid to come to the U.S. and, number one, demand a bribe, and then to accept it while in the U.S.? Sam Rubenfeld explains. Uh, The U.K. pushes back on U.S. jurisdictional outreach. What does it mean going forward? We consider an article by Valerie Charles where she looks at the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy from the perspective of a compliance program. Paul Hodgson explores whether or not a no-deal Brexit would be a disaster for compliance. Maurice Gilbert interviews uh, Valicia McDowell uh, from Moore and Van Allen on compliance leadership and promotion, her promotion to the firm's management committee. We consider the scandals at Maryland, uh, the scandal at Maryland around the death of Jordan McNair. The trainer resigns, the university accepts responsibility, and McNair's parents call for the firing of the head coach. And finally, um, I talk about the uh, one-month celebration of the Land of a Thousand podcast. This week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox again. So some of the week's stories uh, I really want to start with. Final column by Ben DiPietro, uh, formerly at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, where he wrote about how social activism prioritizes the push for integrity and inclusion. He said that organizations are focusing more on these, uh, both integrity, inclusion, and diversity, as pressure from social activisms draws new priorities to senior leaderships. Uh, He looked at a report from BSR, the Global Nonprofit Sustainability Organization. We, of course, link to that in the show notes. Tesla considers, or rather continues, a uh, pretty difficult streak uh, based upon the tweet from its CEO, Elon Musk, where in uh, early August, he tweeted that he was considering taking the company public at $420 a share and had funding, quote, funding secured, end quote. 
uh, to do so. Uh, since that time, uh, it turned out that the uh, Tesla Board of Directors were blissfully unaware of this um, proposal. Uh, they have managed to form a special board committee to consider the strategy. However, the board is unaware of any such deal and has not reached any conclusion about such deal. Uh, Musk himself uh, this week hired business advisors to help this process along. And the question for the Securities and Exchange Commission, which uh, it was reported today had issued a subpoena to the Board of Directors of their knowledge of this, is all this activity that's occurred since the tweet, uh, i.e. after the fact, is Musk and the company simply trying to clean up the mess it found itself in uh, going forward. As for the board, um, its role, it was really interesting, the commentary this week, um, Andrew Ross Sorkin of the New York Deal, New York Times Deal Book said that members of Tesla's board are scrambling to control the chief executives some directors think is out of control. They were upset at, that his tweets had forced them to rush out a public statement explaining a transaction uh, that they were unfamiliar with. Uh, multiple directors have recently told Musk that he should stop tweeting, and one urged him to stick to building cars and launching rockets. Um, the, uh, both the company's board and the PR staff have echoed this point. Some board members are growing alarmed at what they see as er his erratic behavior. And uh, once again, directors were blindsided by his announcement of the uh, funding secured tweet. Uh, there were both, uh, or rather Goldman Sachs and Silver Lake uh, signed on, uh, or allegedly had signed on as advisors. Uh, although apparently they knew nothing about that at the time of the uh, tweet. So as I mentioned, the uh, SEC has issued a subpoena, so we'll have to see where uh, this goes forward. Uh, we link to uh, articles uh, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, Ethics and uh, FCPA Compliance Blog, and Compliance Week. So if you are a foreign government official, why should you not come to the United States demand a bribe, and then accept a bribe payment in the United States. Well, if you do, you subject, subject yourself to U.S. jurisdiction, and that's exactly what uh, Columbia's former national anti-corruption uh, director and a Colombian lawyer uh, pleaded guilty to. The uh, national director of anti-corruption, Luis Gustavo Moreno Rivera, and lawyer Leonardo Luis Pinilla Gomez uh, both pled guilty to uh, money laundering. The uh, Former anti-corruption chief sent the attorney to meet a former Colombian governor in the United States to extract a uh, extortion payment. Um, this was um, reported to the Department of Justice. The money was paid, and that uh, the bills were marked, so the payment was traced uh, for um, Mr. or the lawyer, Mr. Um, Gomez. He did this in the United States, which, of course, creates U.S. jurisdiction. So uh, he and uh, the former anti-corruption national director will be spending some amount of time in U.S. jails, no doubt. Next up, we had a very interesting uh, decision from U.K. courts where they actually pushed back against the Department of Justice's global reach. On July 31, the High Court of England and Wales denied the U.S. Uh, DOJ's extradition of Scott Stewart, a British foreign national exchange trader indicted in 2016 as part of the fraud section's multi-year effort to investigate and prosecute foreign currency market manipulation. This marks the second time in 2018 the DOJ has lost an extradition fight in London. 
The Department of Justice has uh, indicated it will appeal, but if the decision stands, the Scott case will join a handful of U.S. court cases which have the potential to significantly impact the DOJ's ability to reach across the globe to pursue foreign nationals for violations of the FCPA and other financial uh, fraud statutes. The uh, English court denied the extradition request uh, based upon the interest of justice clause in the U.K. law, which militated against extradition. Uh, the court considered seven statutory factors, but it based its decision primarily on two factors. One, that most of the harm took place in the United Kingdom, and two, the defendant here, Scott, he had a strong connection to the United Kingdom and really the absence of any significant connections to the United States. Uh, the Serious Fraud Office supported the Department of Justice in this. Nevertheless, they lost in the court. So uh, in an article by Evan Norris and Alma Mozik, Mozik, tick, uh, in the New York University uh, Compliance Journal, uh, they wrote a very interesting article, and they listed some of the things that we need to watch for going forward. So number one, will a non-UK citizen have similar access to invoking the forum bar uh, in fighting extradition from the UK to the US? Will defendants arrested overseas for financial crimes increasingly opt to challenge extradition cases where they might previously have consented to extradition? Uh, will the Scott case cause the Department of Justice to turn its attention away from London-based financial crimes targets or simply employ other tactics? And could this damage or strain the relationship between the DOJ and UK authorities? All very good questions and things uh, that we are going to have to uh, watch going forward. Once again, this is in the uh, New York University Compliance and Enforcement blog. So uh, next, we take a look at the... UK uh, Brexit, but in the context of compliance. And in a very interesting article in Compliance Week, Paul Hogson uh, uh, wrote about uh, the potential compliance nightmares, and he listed several, some of which uh, may have a more financial bend. Nevertheless, they may fall upon the shoulders of a chief compliance officer to consider. So number one, and probably most important, is the value-added tax, or VAT, if you're a business and you import something into the U.S. from outside the EU, you pay a customs duty in VAT. Um, uh, and how may this change? Uh, most goods are subject to VAT in the United Kingdom. Some are exempted. Some have different rates of corporate duty, but you're going to really have to have a plethora of rates uh, to pay. If there's a free trade agreement with the EU, there would not be a charge on customs duties. But once again, with no free trade agreement, no waiver of that charge. Uh, there could be a very difficult no-import-export scenario, depending on what happens with the unresolved Irish border question. If you don't have a free trade agreement and you're operating under the World Trade Organization rules, you have to charge the same rate of customs duty regardless of where the goods come from. So, for example, in Ireland, they <clears throat> decided not to have a border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic and the EU and not to charge duties. This is going to make it difficult uh, in other places. You know, within the health and safety context, there are regulations around lorry drivers, which could significantly affect the uh, uh, what happens when there's a lengthy de delay at a port. So if you're stuck in a queue for five hours and you exceed the maximum hours driving before a break, what happens? Uh, obviously, complying with regulations disclosing the origins of duties will be an uh, important consideration for the compliance regulation regulator. So how unlikely is this, uh, a no-Brexit deal? Well, um, it's certainly on the radar, and it's certainly something that you need to think about. 
So what are some of the key issues you need to consider? Uh, one, delays in clearing goods through customs at channel ports. What does that mean for you? Additional costs as a result of customs duties on goods arriving in the UK and goods sold to EU customers. Next, uh, cash flow impacts of import VAT at 20% on purchases from EU suppliers. Requirements for inspection of food and pharmaceutical products entering both the UK and the EU. The VAT treatment of goods posted to EU private consumers from the United Kingdom. And most importantly, or perhaps uh, last but not least, the impact on the supply chain involving processing and packing of products in the United Kingdom and in the EU. Next, I cite to an article in the August edition of the SCCE, Compliance and Ethics Professional Magazine. It's by Valerie Charles. Valerie is the Chief Strategy Officer for GAN Integrity in, uh, she's uh, located in New York. She wrote a really interesting article uh, asking you to consider the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, but from the uh, perspective of the compliance program. And she identified five priorities from this uh, new corporate enforcement policy uh, that you need to think about. So they are uh, as follows. Make risk assessments contextual. Here, your risk assessment should turn where and how your organization does business. So do you sell through third parties or do you sell through an employee sales force? For example, if a company relies heavily on third parties and emerging markets, it should know which parties are at the mo- most at risk for comp- uh, corruption. Two, make the connection between risk and policies, procedures, and controls. It is axiomatic that company uh, their compliance is an interplay between policies, procedures, and controls. Uh, however, they must be tied to the risks your organization faced. Once again, uh, if your sales model is third parties, how robust is your due diligence? How many levels down does a third parties does your due diligence go? Does it go to the sub-agent level? Think about the Panasonic Avionics FCPA enforcement action where the issue was sub-agents surreptitiously appended to currently uh, existing agents who'd been previously approved. Um, obviously, if you want cooperation credit from the Department of Justice, you're going to be required to cooperate po- fully. But here... Charles focuses on the compliance program and your readiness to provide full and thorough cooperation in turning over all the facts. So your company will need strong policies for litigation holds, e-discovery, and data preservation. Even if the investigation itself is done by an auditor and outside counsel, the compliance program must foster an environment that supports strong investigative abilities. Uh, Obviously, this slides directly into the Tom Fox mantra of document, 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 of your actions in your compliance program to demonstrate to the Department of Justice the lack of intent of your organization if some bad actors are able to override internal controls or otherwise violate your company policy. Number four, communicate a strong culture of compliance. Nick Saban, uh, head coach at Alabama, has said that the purpose of discipline is to change behavior. This means your compliance program must have the teeth to Strongly and forcefully discipline employees who violate your compliance program literally from the boardroom to the shop floor and everywhere in between. You have to have the ability to do so to third parties. A strong culture of compliance leads to what the FCPA corporate enforcement policy wants, self-disclosure of violations. And finally, finding and fixing weaknesses. 
The remedy prong of the tripartite compliance solution, prevent, detect, and remediate, has long existed. However, the new corporate enforcement policy formalized the requirement through the, the mandatory nature of the root cause analysis. This means companies must literally get to the root cause of an issue that becomes an FCPA violation and not engage in cosmetic patching going forward. You must have a diagnostic capability in your compliance program that can lead to new policies and procedures or controls as warranted. Once again, this means your organization must be prepared to not only respond to the requirements of the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, but more importantly, have the underlying structure in place as a part of your compliance program going forward. Next up is an interview in Connections, which is a publication of interviews on Corporate Compliance Insight, Maurice's, Maurice Gilbert's most excellent uh, resource. If you haven't checked it out, I would certainly encourage you to do so. It's really one of the top sites in compliance. And here he posts an interview with Valicia McDowell, and she is with Moore and Van Allen. She's recently been appointed to the company's manage, uh, management committee, but she's a former CCO, and she talks about uh, working in-house. She talks about how it interacts with compliance. She talks about risks, how to manage those risks, the role of a compliance professional, and her new role at the law firm. It's a fascinating interview, and I commend it uh, to you. Uh, if you are a lover of college football, you are in having a very difficult uh, summer. Uh, certainly, the Urban Meyer matter at Ohio State is very troubling, but unfortunately, uh, We've got the situation at the University of Maryland around the death of Jordan McNair. Uh, this has lots of lessons for the compliance professional. I've linked to uh, articles in both Sports Illustrated and ESPN on this. Um, the background to this is uh, Jordan McNair had a heat stroke after running 110-yard wind sprints. Uh, the uh, training session he was running was run by the trainer. That's by NCAA rules, not the coaches. Uh, the trainers thought he was dogging it and did not uh, immediately attend to him nor provide medical assistance. There was some uh, hour to an hour and a half between the time he had the heat stroke and they actually called 911, and unfortunately, Jordan McNair died. The uh, head trainer has been terminated uh, from Maryland. Uh, the University of Maryland has accepted responsibility for his death. Uh, the coach um, is on administrative paid leave. Awaiting uh, the results of uh, the internal investigation. It's uh, just a terrible situation, horrible situation for Maryland, obviously terrible for McNair's parents. But the uh, several clear uh, lessons come up from this. One is the uh, culture at the University of Maryland is clearly or was clearly one of very toxic. It was abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse um, of the players, in an attempt to motivate them. Uh, and this, perhaps that worked in the 60s, if you played football in high school, uh, basketball track, any sport, <clears throat> I'm sure you were subjected to some of that, just as I was, but those days are long gone. And if someone has a physical condition which causes uh, uh, something like a heat stroke, you have got to uh, administer uh, medical attention. This was a closed practice, so of course there was no transparency. Uh, you had a trainer running it, and where the medical professionals were, certified medical professionals, is still an open question. Uh, what the uh, coach did, he certainly set the tone. He allowed this to happen going forward, and it uh, wouldn't surprise me if he's terminated. But it's just a, a terrible situation. 
Now I'd like to say a few words about the lead article for this week um, that I think uh, in view of the president's comments this week about the press being the enemy of the people, but more importantly, the response literally led by the Boston Globe where more than 300 U.S. newspapers ran editorials on Friday that promoted uh, press freedom to counter these attacks. And it really uh, reminded me how important the free press is, is the fight against bribery and corruption. Here in Houston, uh, the editor of the Houston Chronicle is a lady named Lisa Falkenberg. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner. And she said in the Houston Chronicle's editorial, uh, the president is only right if your friend is unchecked government power. If your allies are corruption and the misuse of taxpayer dollars, if it's biased grand juries and wrongful convictions, if it's a state policy illegally denying special education services to thousands of Texas children, then uh, you don't want a free press. But if you do want a free press and you do want a democratic society, uh, this was not only recognized by our founding fathers, fathers, but also was enshrined in the First Amendment. I've long thought the role of the fourth estate in the battle against bribery and corruption was significant. I was reminded of this role this week with the retirement of Ben DiPietro from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. The Risk and Compliance Journal is the only daily publication from a U.S. newspaper which focuses on bribery and corruption. Obviously, there are some bloggers out there, myself included, Dick Kasson at the FCPA blog, Mike Volkoff, and uh, others. But um, this is the only national daily U.S. newspaper that focuses on bribery and corruption. The Risk and Compliance Journal plays an important role in the continuing fight against bribery and corruption, just as all journalists applying their trade in the field do so. Uh, Houston Chronicle editor Falkenberg was right that a free and robust press is significant, but it's far beyond newspapers and bloggers. Uh, article writers such as Adam Davidson at The New Yorker who write about uh, money laundering, uh, allegations of money laundering against the Trump organization in large real estate projects are a part of the fight. Uh, book authors such as Jack Ewing and his book on the VW emissions testing scandal, Ken Bensinger and his book on corruption at FIFA, and John Carreyou and his book on the fraud perpetrated by Theranos are some only some of the most recent examples of uh, reporters who wrote books that are part of a rich tradition and an important part in the worldwide fight against bribery and corruption. We all have a role to play in the fight against bribery and corruption. Obviously, the prosecutors are there to enforce a growing number of laws against bribery and corruption literally across the globe. Companies and businesses subject to those laws are there to engage in business activities consistent with those laws. And compliance professionals are there to create business processes to do business ethically in compliance with anti-corruption laws. But a free press is there to report on successes and help root out the failures. This is certainly not being uh, the enemy of the people. So I'd like to uh, conclude with um, a reminder that this is the Land of a Thousand podcast. In the month of August, I'm celebrating uh, my 1,000 podcasts this year. Uh, or rather in the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, this week, I've run a five-part series with Matt Kelly, my partner over on Radical Compliance, on the future of internal audit, uh, compliance, and analytics. Uh, today, uh, part five will post. Uh, next week, I'm running a series on ethical culture, what it means, how to assess it, 
um, how to measure it, how to drive it going forward. That will be sponsored by this podcast sponsor, uh, Affiliated Monitors. The podcast series posts daily at 10 a.m. on the Compliance Podcast Network here on the FCPA uh, ComplianceReport.com site. Also, it posts uh, in the morning, a little bit earlier on JD Supra. And I will be uploading all five episodes on Monday in Libsyn and iTunes if you want to download them and binge listen to them. I hope you will check them out. Uh, the series on ethical culture is very fascinating, but it's an important series for every compliance practitioner. So this is uh, the end of uh, episode 116. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. Uh, Jay Rosen will be back next week, and I hope you will join me again. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.